Hello and welcome to the second season of All I Know. My name is Jen Winkleman and I'm your host for this time where we gather together as if we're around a little campfire and we're there to listen as everyday people tell us some of their stories. Here at this show, we believe that behind every single face, there are stories. And in every story, there are lessons for life that are waiting to be learned by the rest of us. So today, our guest and I will have a largely unscripted conversation, aside from the anchor questions that we use to get into our interviews. And then as our guest story unfolds, if you and I choose to do so, we can catch the truth and knowledge and wisdom that's being shared with us like little fireflies in a jar and then use that as light for our own paths in life. Thanks again for being with us. This is All I Know. Welcome back for this next conversation on All I Know. Today, I'm very happy to welcome our guest, Jennifer. Jennifer, welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. This is my first podcast interview. Well, a lot of people say that when they come to this show because most of us don't have a platform. So this Mm -hmm. is something new for all of us. And I love that we have this opportunity to share a little bit about what we've learned from life. Absolutely. And I have learned so much. So I have a lot to share. Well, tell us first, what do we need to know about who you are to make the most of today's conversation? Well, I look like I might be a traditional soccer mom, but looks can be deceiving because I have a very unique backstory of my personal life. And even my career has not taken the traditional trajectory. And even where I am right now is... 180 degrees from where I thought I would be at this point in my life. But that being said, I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'm very content and grounded and joy-filled. So when you say you look like a soccer mom, (laughs) but that your background isn't traditional, are we going to talk about that today? Or do you want to pepper some of that in now so that we understand what you mean when you say that? Well, it's all part of the same story. So, yes, I would like to talk about it. And uh, for the children in the room, this will be an R-rated conversation because a lot (laughs) of it is about my journey, how I reached for passion. And I don't know anyone that has had a journey like mine. So I very purposefully made sure I have a loving, passionate life now. Okay, so what is your definition of success, Jennifer? Well, mine is, as I just said, it's a uh, a life filled with purpose and passion. That is my word of the day, I think. Passion in my work, passion in my love, uh, passion in dance. Of course, you and I know each other from the dance studio, and I would say that that passion is probably the first one that came to my life. And It has just changed my life, and I have a community and support and acceptance. And because of that, I could reach out and do these other crazy, passionate things. It's amazing how dancing can take a hold of you, isn't it? It's just changed my life. I mean, it changed my physical life. And it even changed where and how I live because... I've never lived anywhere more than five years until I discovered ballroom dancing. And now I've stayed put for 16 years. And I would break my heart if I were to move away from this community. I I can never leave the Denver area now. And I'm totally okay with that. It's so funny that you say that because I've always thought that I would be a person who always lives in Denver. I love Denver. Or I should say I loved Denver. (laughs) (laughs) I think the Denver that I hold close has been gone for about 20 years just because of the way the city's grown and changed. And then I don't think we have the infrastructure to support the population growth that we've had in the metro. But when I think about the possibility of leaving Denver, one of the very first things at the tip top of the list that keeps me anchored here is 
the idea of like I can't leave my coach. I can't leave the studio. Wholeheartedly agree. I had a boyfriend that was most likely relocating to Chicago. And at the time it was early on in the relationship, we dated for about a year. And at the end of that first year, he was about to move. And I said, uh, I can't move. I'd be happy to have two homes, like your home and my home in two different states, but I can't leave my dance family. So, and now obviously he's an ex-boyfriend. So, (laughs) so so that part worked out. Yeah. Well, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's hard. It's hard to think about separating from that because there is something about this hobby or this passion or this interest. I don't know what's the right word to attach to dancing that just so much more than a hobby. I get offended when people call it a hobby because it's more like an obsession. Well, Uh, And it becomes a part of your lifeblood where you feel like I'm going to die if I don't have access to this anymore. I am in a very high stress crazy period of my life right now, like more than ever. (laughs) And I call, I've had these moments, I call them radical self-care because I choose to go out dancing, even though I'm exhausted and in a very bad mood, I make myself get off the couch, put on my shoes and leave the house. And within 15 minutes of getting at the studio, I'm usually giggling and happy and joy filled again. So it's, It takes a lot to make myself get up and go sometimes, but this, this is, this is beautiful life. And it all leads back to, you know, the whole R rated part of my story. I would love to share that with you. Most people who know me know this part of my story. It's no longer the, it's no longer what I'm known for. It's not the first thing I talk about, but my husband of 25 years is transgender and became my wife. And we remarried, and now we are physically separated, but still close. We've been family for 31 years at this point, and we don't really want to be together anymore. But the extremely deep rejection that came from that was devastating, debilitating. I kind of pushed it under the rug for a while, but I had such self-loathing because First, there was no more sex because things changed and I found myself married to a woman, but I'm straight and I had no passion and no love. Yeah, it was just horrible. I'm extremely proud. One of the hardest things I ever did, which is also one of the craziest things I've ever done, is I grabbed for passion. I reached for passion and I had been with the same person for 25 years And I didn't really want to date anybody else, but I really needed some satisfaction. I needed some passion. So uh, with my therapist's help, we figured out how was I going to go about doing this? I didn't really want to go on Tinder. Like I didn't want to be dating. Frankly, I just wanted sex. So I went online and I found a website of escorts beautiful, handsome men for straight women. And it was terrifying the first time I did it. It's just like shop online shopping. You have a profile. (laughs) Seriously, they have a profile. You learn all about them. It is companionship. So you're paying for companionship and whatever happens, happens. It is legal. But obviously, most women are probably doing this for more than arm candy and just companionship. And the very first time um, I did this, I have to admit, I did it more than once. The very first time I did it, I was so scared. I almost left. We were going to meet at a bar and I like I couldn't breathe. I was terrified. I couldn't believe I was putting myself out like this. But it was uh, it was thrilling and it was empowering and it was fun. It was really, really fun. It was also the escort's first time, I believe. Oh, wow. And he was extremely young and very cute and very sweet. But it was not the dream romance night that I always wanted. So being the assertive woman that I am, I tried again with somebody else. And this man changed my life. Okay, Uh, whoa. 
I got to time you out because there is so many things I want to ask. Okay. We're going to have to rewind this. Okay. And back up and fill in some blanks. And I okay. know I am not the only one who's like, time out. I have questions. <laughs> is I that know. okay? Of course. I want to share my story. I believe all women, all humans deserve to grab passion and grab love. Okay, so let's drop a pin right there. And I want to ask, which I feel stupid asking this question right now because I have a sense of what you might say. But that anchor question around where you plot your life on the spectrum between ordinary and extraordinary. (laughs) I'm laughing at myself for asking it. Where do you plot your life, Jennifer? Extraordinary. Yeah. I... That's why I say I look like a soccer mom. I'm not. I don't live in a house with a white picket fence. It's even more complicated than that because I am what's called polyamorous. So I have a loving relationship with my wife and I have a long-term relationship with my boyfriend. So it is a, I mean, they're not together, but I'm in the middle and I love them both. And it is a very satisfying life, and it's a very authentic life. It's the life that I made for myself because I was handed some crazy shit. And look what I made from my life. I'm extremely proud of that. Okay, so the last anchor question, and then we're going to go back in time. What would you say are three events, themes, or circumstances that have most shaped who you are? And you might have touched on it a little bit for us already. I know I have three themes always in my life. And one is always helping the underdog, helping the less fortunate, saving the world, something in that I'm always driven to make the world a better place. And I'm still doing that to this day. And my mom told me That even when I was a child, I was always taking care of the outcast child in the classroom. So I've always done that my whole life. That's one theme. The other theme is I've been told that I'm tenacious. And even my T-shirt I'm wearing says, nevertheless, she persisted. Mm. And I was learning how to windsurf. I lived in San Francisco for a time and... I could not even stand up on the board to try to surf the wind. And I tried for so many hours and I was crying and it was horrible. And I left and I came back the next morning because it was a weekend course. And my instructor then said, I've never seen anybody more tenacious, anybody come back after such a horrible first day. And I said, I'm doing this. And I'm I'm not going to be great, but I am going to do it. And I did do it. And in fact, that led to another extraordinary part of my life. I retired early, sold everything and moved to Maui and lived the windsurfer dream. So what? Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, 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 so, wait, wait. So that's tenacity. Wait, when was that? When was the windsurfer dream? Uh, that was 20 years ago now. Yeah, what I did tell you retire you. from? Uh, I used to be a research scientist. I did HIV research and immunology and pharmaceutical and vaccine work. And I was at the top of my field and made a lot of money and was so miserable. And my wife and I sold everything, made a fortune at our house, moved to Maui. Yeah. But oh, that wow. came to my next theme. The next theme has always been food or baking, or something nurturing. And when I was on Maui, I went to culinary school and I became a pastry chef. And I swear, every few years, the pastry chef life pops back up. And right now I'm doing like gardening and feeding others and trying to start a nonprofit produce farm. So there's the food and the nurturing. But yeah, I've had exciting, exciting careers. So So cool. Those are the three things. (laughs) So when you shared those themes or events, how do they tie back to this idea of reaching for passion that you want to talk about today? Well, one of them was that 
in my professional scientific career, I was good at what I did and I was being paid a lot, but I was so miserable. There was no joy. There was no passion. In fact, there was misery. And it took a lot of guts. I'm a very courageous person, as I found out. And it took a lot of guts to drop out and reach for joy, reach for passion. And I'm extremely proud that I did it. What made it miserable? Just to try and get my head around that part of it. God. (laughs) I don't even want to go there, but I will. Okay. Oh, it was a micromanaging boss. It was in a basement laboratory. It was high pressure. It was dangerous. I was working with human blood, HIV positive, unprotected. It was a very dangerous position. It was monotonous. I realized at that point, this was 16 years into my scientific career. I realized that I was really not saving the world the way I wanted to. I was helping other people's professional careers and I was just a tool. So it was, wow. It was a, it was a brave and glorious decision to drop out and move away. Again, it was radical self-care, right? I just left the rat race and that has changed me. I, my years on Maui has changed my heart and soul. I believe it just, just made me softer, more loving, more open to change. How long were you there? I was there for five years. Okay, so let's start stringing this together. And I'm going to bring some of my questions to the floor around this pursuit of passion. How old were you when you met your wife? And that was clearly before the transition. The transition was a surprise to you, I assume? No, it really wasn't. I did. I supported her completely. And also, I have what we call revisionist history. So even though she was a he, I just say way back when everything is she from now forward, because it's just simpler to keep the pronoun the same. But I was 26 when I met her, you know, living the scientific life. And she was an engineer. And she was the most brilliant person I'd ever met and was an escape from my I would say conservative, traditional life. We did some exciting things together. We moved. We had lived in three wonderful places together. We started five companies together. We were a power couple, as I I really, truly believed it would always be that way. The transition was not a complete surprise. A few years into this 31-year relationship, I knew that uh, she was leaning a certain way. And I'm completely open to anybody's sexuality, whatever they want to do. So I helped her on that journey. So that wasn't hard for you or jarring or shocking for you. It was like, oh, okay, I can go along with this. Absolutely. I've been told that I'm unusually non-judgmental because a friend of mine told me about some interesting kink they have, some sexual kink they have. And I just said, oh, wow, just calmly, like supportively. And she goes, I can't believe you just said that. I've never told anybody without them freaking out. And I said, good for you. You know what turned you on? Who am I to say it's wrong or right? So that's how I felt with the gender expression. My wife truly was meant to be a woman her whole life and she couldn't do it until she was uh, let's just say 50 plus and a whole life of self-loathing and feeling like you're in the wrong body was damaging yeah what was that conversation like for you when it was like okay this is more than just leaning this way this is happening I think I was looking at it as a project manager because that's what I do. These things need to be done and I can help you get them done. Also, I truly believe since we'd been together incredibly, perfectly happy for 25 years, I thought that after the transition, she would be a feminine version of him. But she is actually a very, very different person than him. And it took me years to figure it out, but I don't like her very much. We are not even really friends. So that was heartbreaking that 
this transition happen. And in fact, she chose to fall in love with other people, not to return to me. Truly heartbreaking. Okay, now my brain is kind of like, so I'm sorry, I'm probably having the completely inappropriate reaction, but I just feel so confused because weren't you saying that you guys are still in a relationship and that you still love her, but it's, but this sounds like you guys broke up after the transition. We are in a relationship as we are still married completely and everything we own is together. (laughs) And we are family. That's what I feel like. She is a family member, 31 years now together. But they're not a lot alike, and there's not a lot alike and not any love left. How is she different than him? What did you lose in him? So much. Um, He might have been... A selfish person, but perhaps I didn't notice it. But she is pathologically selfish to the point that even conversations are not two-way. They are just all about her. She's also, unfortunately, suffering from the effects of hormones. So she is, for the rest of her life, she will be enduring PMS symptoms. So if you can imagine, she's very dramatic Uh, very high, very low, and it's exhausting. So I finally just, it's only, hasn't even been a year yet that we've had some physical distance and it's been the best year of my life. Okay. So you were together for about 25 years before the transition began. And how many years were you in transition with her? It's been six years since that. So 25 fantastic years, six really crappy years. And they were crappy because you're having a hard time with who she is and what you lost in him, Mm -hmm. but not because you're struggling with the change itself. That's correct. I'm thrilled that she is who she is supposed to be. Her choices once she transitioned, were to become a full new woman. And instead of staying in the marriage, she fell in love with at least three other women who were not interested in her. And at first I thought, you know, she was exploring her femininity, but I've just realized that was the beginning of my realization of the rejection. Where was that in this six-year In the six-year time period, when do you feel like she left the marriage? The first week of taking hormones. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I had no idea. I was blind to how this was going to turn out. It also took me a very long time because we had such a wonderful marriage for so long I couldn't see that the wonderful marriage was over. And I had several friends say, it doesn't matter that you were great before. You are no longer great together now. And is that because of the transition or is that because of who she is after the transition? I think they're one and the same. It's who she has become as a person I would not choose her to be my friend. So she fell in love with at least three other people and is going outside the marriage at this point. You have been supportive of the transition, still love her, trying to help her navigate this enormous change. And you discover she's essentially outside the marriage, but you guys stay married because... Why? Because we were partners. We were a team. And I was supportive of her exploration because she finally got to live life as a woman. In fact, I overindulged a bit. I let her become a bridezilla. We remarried. (laughs) Did you divorce? No, no. 
married again with the new names. Okay. So it was kind of odd how I changed my last name when we got married the first time. She changed her first name when we got married the second time. Whatever. <laughs> it was a glorious experience, but I, I helped create a bridezilla and she was a horrible bride to be around, but she got to be the bride in the white gown and the big bridesmaids and all of the celebrations. Unfortunately, one of the women she fell in love with was in the bridal party. She was having such an emotional roller coaster breakdown that she almost did not come to our own wedding reception because she didn't want to upset the bridesmaid that she was in love with. It's nonsense, but that was the beginning of my enlightenment that this remarriage was probably not a good idea, but it was something I was going to see through for a while. I just, my brain is like, I don't even know how to articulate what's happening in my brain. I can't imagine what this must have felt like for you. I've been sitting here listening to you and I just feel so confused. Were you confused? What was this like emotionally for you? Perhaps I was suppressing it, but I only recently have tapped into the anger or acknowledged the anger. But really what happened to me was, it was again, going back to passion. The passion was completely gone. This person I'd been with and I thought I was always going to be with was now pursuing other people and I was left alone. And at I had your to... ceremony, at your remarriage. Yes. You're alone. Yes. Yes. It was heartbreaking. It was also embarrassing because, again, this was in the dance community. So everyone saw what was happening. And it, that was very embarrassing. So for many years, the response to most people was they pitied me. They felt sorry for me. Poor Jennifer. She's being cast away. And that was the most painful part of it, that all my friends, all of our friends saw what she was doing. And I was allowing it. But that's a good segue to how I reclaimed it, though. I realized towards the end of the marriage, the first straight marriage, uh, we hadn't had sex for a very, very long time. And I actually went 10 years without sex. And I just accepted that's what life was going to be. But that's why it's so transformative that I took action and I went on these journeys and I met these amazing life-changing men. <laughs> you look like you have more to say about that, but you sort of stopped yourself. Well, yes. I want to share the beauty of the second escort that I spent time with. So if that's where we're going chronologically, mm -hmm. let me, mm -hmm. let me just make sure this is sort of all strung together. So you're at the remarriage ceremony and you're basically there alone emotionally. Mm -hmm. And how much time did you spend emotionally alone in the second marriage before you started pursuing something different for yourself. How long did you just be in the frustration and the loneliness of it? I believe it was a couple years. I have trouble remembering when all of this happened. And then there was a pandemic with that messed up time. Right, 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 right. I often and, think it's 20 or 22. I'm having trouble with the years. <laughs> and were you, were you and her living together at that time? In, oh, yes. In lived together until this year. So we even in that's another heartbreaking and huge challenge that I was ashamed of. But then now I'm very proud of. But she and I hit some financial problems and sold our fabulous home, a beautiful home and sold everything because we were falling apart financially and we moved into my parents basement so we went from a five bedroom four bathroom home 
to a 1,000 square foot basement with wow. my parents and our two dogs. Wow. And it's a one bedroom and we turned it into a two bedroom and we worked and lived in this small space and it was hell. But now, in hindsight, she has moved out. She has her own fabulous place. Uh, she took one of our dogs, so it's easier for me to handle one dog and she handles one dog. And now I look at myself financially and because of that heartbreaking, incredibly painful decision, I now have enough money for the rest of my life. I am in my late 50s. I have a job. I'm working for equity. I don't get paid and I don't need any money. So that's, I'm so proud of that huge change. I reached for security as well. I made a drastic, radical self-care change. And now anyway, I look at it, I'm okay until I die. Yeah, you came out ahead. I did, but it was painful and embarrassing. Mm -hmm. So for a couple of years, you're in the marriage after the recommitment, very lonely. And all of that time living together and she was continuing to go outside the marriage. Mm -hmm. With my support. With your support. What we call that is polyamory or ethically non-monogamous. I just, I wasn't really ready to date yet because I thought we were together. Eventually I realized, oh, I need to date too. (laughs) And that took a couple of years. It did. So then when you got to that place, that's what what brings us to the first escort experience, Mm -hmm. which you talked about a little bit, but what you really want to share is the second escort experience. That's right. How far in time was it between those? Three months. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, about 90 days. Yeah. And the second escort is a bodybuilder, a personal trainer, an underwear model, basically a Sicilian god. (laughs) Oh, I love that. (laughs) And he loves women. And again, I have this body shame because I'm a thick, big woman. And my husband turned into a woman and I haven't had sex and uh, all this stuff. And I again, I was nervous, but I met this man. And the very first thing he did was compliment me on my muscles. And here he is, a bodybuilder and a personal trainer. And he admired my leg muscles. He looked at my back. He said, you are ripped. You are sculpted and gorgeous. And that was just, you know, verbal foreplay. Four hours later, which is all I could afford, by the way, he healed 30 years of body shame because he worshipped my body and made me feel so sexy. And we had so much fun. And he just... He just changed my life. And it was so profound that I actually met with him again many months later, almost as a thank you. And he thanked me for changing his attitude and his life. And it was such a deep connection. He almost moved out here to live with me. I mean, it was was life-changing. It was... Again, it was one of the most extreme things I've ever done. And from that moment, my life has changed completely. I literally, the next morning, I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, damn, girl, you got this. And I went to the dance studio a few days later. And there was a a guy that I'd had a dance crush on for years that was there at some event, some party. And he walks up to me and goes, girl, what has happened to you? You are glowing. Oh, my gosh. And then in my newfound confidence, I said, well, do you want to get together and we can talk about it? And we went out. I went out (gasps) with my crush. Oh, my gosh. I'm covered in goosebumps. And even he has changed my life in wonderful ways because we only dated a little bit. And it was, you know, very casual, but 
he and I spent a lot of time kissing in parking lots when we like couldn't quite say goodnight. And he was the first person I'd kissed in what is this, 25, 26 years. He just like made my toes tingle and my insides flutter and he reignited passion. Like I I really found passion with him, even though all we did was kiss. But it was such good kissing. And I said, oh, I still got it. I can still feel these feelings. Because there's something that happens in American society. I think once you're like over the age of 22 or something, you're just not supposed to express these feelings. But I certainly own them now. And they've been reignited. Yeah. I'm finding myself having a very emotional response to what you just said. And I think that points out for me, there's some things for me to think about there. If I'm having this kind of response to you, you know, telling this story about your dance crush and what that woke up in you, I think there are probably so many things that are sleeping in so many women as a way to survive. I guess that's the best, you know, way that I can articulate it. And, um, wow. What it must feel like to have them awakened. I feel whole. I feel whole and youthful and energetic. And now years later, I'm in a long-term relationship with such a loving, giving, kind, wonderful, huge man. I, I can't even say enough positive words about him. And one of the best things about our relationship is crazy passion. We have so much fun and we are so old and we're just having so much fun physically. And neither one of us thought we could do that again. And yet here you are. Yes, very proud of it. Very proud of it. How did you two meet? Well, it was supposed to just be a hookup on Bumble. With my newfound confidence, I have a very, or had a very aggressive profile on Bumble, basically saying I'm a passionate woman, I just want to have some fun. And his profile just showed his big heart. Oh my gosh, he talked about his mom, how he likes to help uh, his employees improve their career, just everything about him just lit me up. And we actually had a disastrous first date. I almost, (laughs) I almost ended up in the ER. It was such a disaster. Oh my gosh. But that helped me see his big heart again, because he was taking care of me and calming me and soothing me. And what happened? Well, this is part of, it's almost (laughs) x-rated. Okay. (laughs) I call it a sex accident. Because of my age, women's bodies change and tissue gets thinner. And I actually accidentally sprung a leak. Oh, gosh. And this was the the confident Jennifer. Our first date, we didn't bother with drinks and dinner. I said, honey... Let's just meet in a hotel room. And we did. And we met in the hotel room and it was exciting fun. But unfortunately, I was bleeding all over the place a few minutes into it. Oh, my gosh. You poor (laughs) thing. It was embarrassing. I never experienced. I didn't know that could happen. I didn't know it would stop. And here's this sweet man giving me compresses, rubbing my back, calming me down, rinsing out the towels so he didn't get like a cleaning charge. (laughs) It was mortifying, but it was okay around him. I did not feel awkward in the most awkward moment of my life. (laughs) And it's only gotten better from there, if you can imagine. So if somebody shows me their heart within the first few hours, yeah. I'm going to cling to that. And how long have you been together now? Uh, Two and a half years. 
And he's seen me through horrible things. He's also, uh, he speaks my love language. So one of the challenges of leaving my former house is I no longer had a safe yard for my dog to run in. Just this past spring, I was getting ready for a hand surgery where I would not be able to walk him all the time as he needed. So one spring day, my boyfriend came over and put up a fence in six inches of snow. He got sunburned, snow blind, blisters on his feet from soggy shoes. He put up a secure fence all around my front yard. And I was weeping at the end because nobody has ever done anything that grand for me. He protected my dog, which is the most important thing in my life. Yeah. So he he does that all the time. And it drives me crazy because he's also selfless. To go from, for me, I was in a pathologically selfish marriage, right, to now a chronically selfless relationship. It's beautiful extreme. Yeah, the contrast is kind of hard to even process, I'm sure. Yes. He will often do things that he thinks are no big deal, and I end up weeping because it's so kind and giving and loving of him. And he says, I'm just being a good human. (laughs) I'm like, yes, you are. But it's more than that to you. Yeah, I feel cherished and nurtured. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful, mature, loving relationship. And I did not know I could find that at this point in life. It's hard enough to find friends older in life. But if you can imagine finding a loving boyfriend older in life with my history, because I have some baggage. So he walked into this life. He saw me through when I moved into my parents' basement. I had my wife and my dogs. Sadly, my mom was dying of cancer upstairs. We had caregivers. And then my dad has dementia, and I am his caregiver. And this man stayed in this life and is still in this life with me. How does he feel about your marriage? He is not a big fan of my wife. (laughs) (laughs) We'll just say that. We'll just say that. We can leave it there. He believes I have been emotionally abused for my whole life. Mm. I don't believe it was that bad, but I could be wrong. And she believes that he is the best thing that has ever happened for me. So isn't that interesting? She says, he's really good for you. And I said, yes, he is. So you said it's just been this last year that you and your wife have lived apart What is the relationship like now, particularly that you have this no loving man in your life? I still describe it best as we are family members. It's almost like, I guess you could call it maybe sisters are like this, where you text a few times a week. We have some business transactions, you know, we take care of things. Sometimes we visit each other's dogs, that type of thing. So it's wonderfully distant, I have to say, because she's exhausting. And I'm so, so relieved to be free of that because I don't have to take care of her anymore. She was, she's choosing to be a miserable person and I don't have to be around that anymore. I mean, when you said you had a story... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I had no idea mm, what you. you meant when you said you have well, a story. That's because I don't present that way, right? I mean, I'm authentic when you get to know me, but this is such a hot button conversation. I mean, some people don't even understand what transgender means yet. Most people don't understand what polyamory is. Yeah, I've just, I haven't followed the traditional path that I always thought was my life. Because I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, you know, my parents were together forever. It was just, you go to school, you get a job, you buy a house, all those things, and you have 2.5 kids. That's one other thing, I've had no children. I have no regrets over that. I'm 
now after the transition of my wife, I'm glad that we didn't do that. It would have been very complex mm-hmm. and disturbing, most likely. But now even the boyfriend also doesn't have children. So that's another commonality that we have that we instantly he he was married a long time. He's been divorced a long time. We're both from the Midwest. We're about the same age. I'm like, oh, where did you come from? I think he's just a miracle. Great big teddy bear miracle. So awesome. I love that for you. It brings me this stability and joy. And now the chaos of my life. Um, my mom has passed. I'm taking care of my dad. He has dementia. He doesn't know he has dementia. He's really deteriorating rapidly. And I have no help with the care for him. Mm. It's rolling, unpredictable chaos every day. The things are breaking, losing things. I've had fires and floods. There's the anger. Uh, There's hallucinations. It's, It's crushing. It's just crushing. But I have found balance in this. So I have moments of serenity that I'm very proud of. And moments of escape. So when it gets too bad, I spend a weekend with a boyfriend and just get away for a couple days and decompress and just be me, like the female, the sexy woman me, right? Not the mommy, because I have to be my dad's mommy often. Yeah, you have to take care of him. What happens when you're taking a break? I make sure that a few people check in on him, but that's it. Yeah, I'm very proud of the other services that I've just recently, like in the past month, I have some volunteers that help drive him places. So it used to be me every day, somewhere, something, doctor's offices, and it's just so much. That caregiver fatigue is a real thing. Yes. It It is a real thing. And I think it's such a crisis because... So many people are, you know, responsible for caring for a loved one and you want to see that person through. And there's also a job and the demands of keeping life going and trying to maintain your own mental health and sanity and all of it. And that doesn't even acknowledge your new relationship or the craziness with your wife. Yes. Yes, I do. How are you doing it? I'm. I'm doing it because I am the queen of self-care, and I I truly am. I spend hours a day making sure I got my shit together. I do physical therapy, massage therapy, talk therapy, dance therapy, basically. I have dates. I go out with friends. Yeah, I have, I have really strong boundaries. I actually have a job. But I can only put in about 15 hours a week and because everything else is just so much, extremely challenging and uh, beneficial. It's a career advancement technology and I'm using all my skills. I had imposter syndrome when a colleague of mine recruited me for this position. She had to convince me to take it. And at first I said no. In fact, I sent the email saying, I can't do this position. It's too hard. She goes, what are you talking about? You're perfect for this. And now it's been six months into the position. And I'm like, she's right. I am perfect for this. I am so good at this job. (laughs) That's awesome. I always have this save the planet portion of my life. I'm still doing that. I had an epiphany. A few months ago, in the middle of the night, I woke up in the middle of the night, which never happens to me. I sleep every night so soundly. But I had a dream, and the dream was the boyfriend and I were driving around poor parts of Denver in a golf cart and noticing people were trying to grow food on their like driveways and just everywhere. And the refrain in my dream was, if we only had space, if we only had space, if we only had space. I woke up and said, oh. I have space because I live on my family's estate. We have eight acres of agriculture land. Yes, I live on a farm, but it's not being farmed. 
And I've been trying to feed the hungry for four years, trying to start nonprofits, do these big things. And that dream made me realize I can do it now. I can start now while taking care of my dad. I can start my farm now because I'm stuck at home anyway. I can always take care of the plants while taking care of him. So I've done that. I'm I'm starting a nonprofit to grow produce for food banks. Oh it, my gosh. It makes my heart sing. It makes my life have meaning. It makes this crazy time of my life make sense. So I'm staggered. <laughs> Thank you. I'm staggered. I'm, How can people find the nonprofit if they want to support what you're doing? Well, I have to wait until I form it because that'll be in January. <laughs> okay. So at the time yeah. we're having this conversation is yeah. October of 2022. No, wait, what year is this? Mm-hmm. 2022. That's what I'm going with right now. Oh my gosh, how cute. But I'm really just using, I'm going to start small. In fact, I'm starting with two raised beds. I'm just going to start small and reach out to one food bank that I know and see what they want me to grow for them. I just have to make a difference. I have to make a difference now because what has happened over the past few years, I keep starting these nonprofit attempts. I did it four years ago. I did it a year and a half ago. And my life keeps getting in the way. So I was about to start a nonprofit grocery store, a mobile grocery store. Cool. To go go in the food deserts of Denver. And I was about nine months into that journey. And then my mom asked me to kind of step back to help her pass and help get the estate in order. So I sacrificed two years that it was a sacrifice of love, though I would never I never regret the time with her. That was beautiful. So I was trying to do that nonprofit. And then I got recruited to a think tank and it was called 101010. So it's 10 CEOs put together for 10 days to solve 10 of the world's biggest problems. Oh my. And I got recruited into that twice. The second time was during the pandemic. And I was going to address supply chain and food preservation and hunger and produce nearby where the people need it. And three weeks into that think tank, my mom passed away and I suddenly became my dad's caregiver. So I've had these two attempts, struggling attempts. So that's why this dream epiphany means so much, because I found a way to keep moving forward despite the caregiving challenges. And I've even started a neighborhood produce (laughs) co-op. Awesome. What the heck? Start small. So I'm trading, you know, vegetables and herbs with my neighbors, trying to figure out what grows here. I'm just starting small because I just have to start now. Life is short and uncertain. And I need to stand up for what means the most to me, which is feeding people and helping people. So if you are listening and you want to support Jennifer in this effort, (laughs) after January of 2022, (laughs) you can Google the dancing farmer and see if you can't find it. If you can't find it, (laughs) feel free to reach out to the podcast and I will tell you where this endeavor has gone and how you can find it and contribute and be a part of what Jennifer is doing. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Because I believe we can build a better world together. We all have to do our part. And yes, it seems like my life is chaotic because I'm caregiving and I'm working, but this is a part of the joy and the passion of my life that working the ground and feeding people and making the world a better place is why I'm here. So when you think Jennifer about everything that we talked about today, all the way from (laughs) all the way from your life as a scientist 
to your life as a farmer and a caregiver mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything that happened in between. If you were going to try to crystallize that mm. to say what it is that you know and what you've learned about life because of these experiences, how would you finish the sentence? All I know is you have to reach for your joy. You have to work for it, strive for it, and make your own joy. That's a good lesson. (laughs) I feel kind of knocked between the eyes right now. That's a profound, what's the the word I want to use? Like a a guidepost. A vision, a Mm -hmm. mission. Mm -hmm. It could be part of the stage I am in life, self-actualization. I've achieved all the comfort that I need, all the challenge, and now it's time to reach a hand for other people to help others. But it is my lifelong mission from this point on is to help others because I have enough. I'm so privileged. I don't need any more. So beautiful. (laughs) Thank you. Are you open to finishing our conversation with the questionnaire that James Lipton used at the end of Inside Actors Studio? Okay. Jennifer, what's your favorite word? Passion. What's your least favorite word? Can't. Hmm. I think you're the second person to say can't. Don't tell me I can't do anything. Mm-hmm. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, emotionally? Uh, being outdoors with plant life, like flowers and trees and bushes, farming what, things. <laughs> what turns you off? Selfishness. Favorite curse word? She it. <laughs> I realized I say that dancing all of the time. There's a lot of eyes in there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of birds. Sound or noise do you hate? Ugh, dogs whimpering. What profession other than your own would you most like to attempt? Well, I've already done them all. So uh, if I were to go back, I would do more baking. Actually, scratch that. I would like to be a chocolatier. What profession would you definitely not like to do? Customer support. Yeah, really for anything these days. Anything. anything. Yeah. Who, who wants to do that? No one. <laughs> Nobody. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you pass through the pearly gates? Thank you for your service. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm so glad you are here. This has been extraordinary. I hope I inspired a few people. I hope I especially inspire women to go for it and live their own authentic, passionate life. Just figure out what makes you, what turns you on literally and go for it. And what lights you up. Mm -hmm. And then let yourself be lit. Yes. I'm so glad that you joined me in this conversation with Jennifer today. And I feel like I've said it a few times throughout the course of the day, my brain just feels scrambled with all this information. But one of the most significant things I'm taking away from the time with Jennifer is that idea around crafting your own joy and really carving out that path that lets you live your life with passion. I remember hearing years ago, somebody talking about the phrase living juicy, trying to like Mm. suck all the juice out of life. And that's part of when I think of when I hear you talk, Jennifer, about carving out your own path to joy and making your joy and giving yourself to your passions. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening in today. When our guests agree to be vulnerable with us and to share from the well of their life experience, 
One of the best ways that we can acknowledge that kind of courage is to communicate that what has been shared has fallen on ready ears and a heart that is open. So if there was something that struck a chord today, please interact with the posts on social media that are related to this episode so that you can let that storyteller know about the impact that he or she had on you. If you haven't connected with us already on one of these platforms, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram under the handle All I Know Podcast. Please remember that the ideas, opinions, and views shared today belong solely to each speaker. And while we hope our listeners find fuel for working with in their own lives from every episode, It should be noted that this podcast is not a therapeutic intervention and it's not a substitute for advice or counsel from a mental health professional. All I Know is a production of Inward Bound, which is a private psychotherapy practice based in Denver, Colorado, and our team works primarily with children and their families that have been impacted by developmental or early childhood trauma, and we specialize in adoption and foster care issues. This podcast is produced by Jessica Barry Edelstein and me with audio engineering by Craig Knapp. If you're interested in developing a relationship as a sponsor for this project, or if you're interested in being a guest and one of our storytellers on All I Know, you can reach us at know at inwardboundco.com. I'm going to give that to you one more time. All I know at inwardboundco.com. And you'll never miss an episode if you visit the website so that you can subscribe or follow the show through your preferred streaming platform. And the way to find us on the web is to go to allIKnow.podient.co. We hope you'll join us for the next installment of All I Know. And in the meantime, this is Jen for all of us at the show reminding you, catch all the light you can. <laughs>